There is a fifth dimension beyond that which is known to man. It is a dimension as vast as space and as timeless as infinity. It is the middle ground between light and shadow, between science and superstition, and it lies between the pit of man's fears and the summit of his knowledge. This is the dimension of imagination. It is an area which we call the twilight zone. Often I will begin the Twilight Zone podcast with a disclaimer that there really isn't much in the way of trivia for an episode. In the case of the one that we'll be discussing tonight, it really is the case. There's really not much uh, information to, to pass on. So with that in mind, we will just launch straight into it and take a look at Nightmare as a Child. Month of November, hot chocolate, and a small cameo of a child's face. Imperfect only in its solemnity. And these are the improbable ingredients to a human emotion. An emotion, say, like fear. But in a moment, this woman, Helen Foley, will realize fear. She will understand what are the properties of terror. A little girl will lead her by the hand and walk with her into a nightmare. First broadcast on the 29th of April, 1960. Written by Rod Serling and directed by Alvin Ganza. Now, I will just get the two little pieces of uh, trivia that we do have out the way straight up so we can get on with reviewing the episode. The name Helen Foley of the main character was the name of Rod Serling's English and drama teacher when he was a child. And... This one was directed by Alvin Ganza, however, it was meant to be Richard Albert who was going to direct, but he was involved in a plane crash. If you listen to the episode about the Pable Testament, then you will uh, hear all the details of that. Now, Helen Foley is a teacher. She lives alone, and one day outside her apartment, she encounters a young girl sat on the steps. As the conversation goes on, the things that the young girl says begin to strike certain chords in Helen. The girl, who we find out is called Marky, seems to have a definite agenda and a real reason for being there, but she's not being absolutely clear on what that is. Did you remember? Yes, there was someone. Outside the school, when you were crossing the street, there was a man in a car. There was a man in a car. He stopped for a red light. I looked at him through the windshield. And you recognized him? No. No, I didn't recognize him. But... Well, he... He looked so... 
so familiar to you. He made you frightened, didn't he? Of course he did. So we have this two-handed piece between Janice Rule as Helen Foley and Terry Burnham as Marky. Now, if memory serves, Mark Zickrey is quite critical of them in the Twilight Zone Companion. I think they're okay. I, you know, I think that Janice Rule plays Helen with a certain amount of detachment because I think she is a person who is living with a piece of herself missing. There's not much to say about either of them as actors. Nothing really jumps out at me from their list of credits, so we will leave them right there. Now, the man who Marky has been talking about is a man called Peter Selden. And lo and behold, he turns up at Helen's apartment. It's been a lot of years, Miss Foley. 18 or 19, to be exact. Won't you sit down? Thank you. I've got you stumped, huh? Well, it's no wonder. You were just a little girl at the time. You couldn't have been more than 10 or 11. I used to work for your mother. Selden. Any bells yet, Peter Selden? I do seem to recall. I'd heard that you... Well, after the... tragic thing happened, you were ill for a long time. Were you ever able to recall exactly what it was that... Well, what I mean is, Miss Foley, you drew a blank after that evening. I wonder if it ever came back to you. Now, Peter Selden was played by Shepard Strudwick. He was an actor who acted in films, television and on stage, and he had a couple of prestigious roles to his name. He was in Joan of Arc with Ingrid Bergman, and he played Edgar Allan Poe in The Loves of Edgar Allan Poe. But overall, if you look at his resume, he's very much in the same circles as most of the actors we encounter in The Twilight Zone. You know, very much doing the, the same rounds of anthologies or guest spots in long-running TV shows, that sort of thing. I would say for me, he is the best thing about the episode. He seems to have the ability to present a very respectable front, but then be able to take quite a sinister turn when he needs to. And he's got a very creepy smile. But there is one line in the show that actually gave me quite a start when I first heard it. <laughs> well, it's wonderful to see you grown up the way you have. Just as beautiful as you were when you were a little girl. I had quite a crush on you. I lived in the same apartment building. So basically he's saying that he had a crush on Helen Foley when she was a child. Now, I know that the meaning of language can change with time and trends and so on. To me, at this time, if you have a crush on someone, then you find them attractive. That's the meaning that I understand. Now, I did wonder whether the term crush was perhaps used as a more general term of endearment when this episode was made. Maybe more kind of like saying I was very fond of you as a child, that sort of thing. So I did wonder whether that was perhaps the perceived meaning in those days. 
Now, if the meaning hasn't changed over time and it always meant the same thing, then at this stage in the episode, I think we're more inclined to think that actually, Helen is repressing some sort of memory of being abused as a child. It never goes beyond that comment, apart from the quite strange revelation that Selden has a picture of Helen from when she was a child that he says her mother gave to him. That in itself is odd. You know, parents don't go around giving pictures of their kids to people who work for them. But I think in this case, I'm willing to accept that perhaps Selden acquired the photo rather than being given it and he's just saying that that's how he got it. Now, Douglas Brody in the book Rod Sailing in the Twilight Zone believes that this was a very definite act on Sailing's part to put that comment about Selden having a crush on young Marky in the episode. And Brody has this to say, he said, Sailing dared suggest that the true reason for memory loss may have been something more horrific even than murder. Just before Selden reveals his true intention, he speaks of the past. While he leaves out the murder, we have no reason to believe anything he does say is a lie. One line stands out. I had quite a crush on you, you know. It was the child whom, in flashbacks, he confronts in her bedroom. Sailing pushed the boundaries of TV at that time. By implication, this was the first ever TV drama about what can be openly portrayed today, the impact of child molestation. So how does that figure into the whole? Well, I think it's left up to us to, uh, to put our own interpretations on that, so I guess everyone out there will decide whether it does or does not have a place. So eventually Helen's memories return and Selden tries to kill her because now she remembers that Selden killed her mother and he's returned to finish the job. But in the final act, Selden falls down some stairs to his death. I think that ultimately one of the problems with Nightmare as a Child is the same problem that Rod Sailing himself identified with where is everybody. There just isn't that element of the unknown there. Helen Foley is a woman who is dealing with a repressed memory of a childhood trauma. The personification of her younger self being created by her own mind in such a vivid way is unusual, but it's not unexplainable. And I'm sure there are probably, although I haven't researched it, similar stated cases. Repressed memories are certainly something that we do hear about. Now, Elizabeth Loftus of the University of Washington wrote about a true life case that has some similarities to this one. It doesn't have that element of memories resurfacing as a person, but just listen to this. In 1990, a landmark case went to trial in Redwood City, California. The defendant, George Franklin Sr., 51 years old, stood trial for a murder that had occurred more than 20 years earlier. The victim, 8-year-old Susan K. Nason, was murdered on September 22, 1969. Franklin's daughter, Eileen, only 8 years old herself at the time of the murder, provided the major evidence against her father. What was unusual about the case is that Eileen's memory of witnessing the murder had been repressed for more than 20 years. 
Aline's memory did not come back all at once. She claimed that her first flashback came one afternoon in January 1989 when she was playing with her two-year-old son Aaron and her five-year-old daughter Jessica. At one moment, Jessica looked up and asked her mother a question like, Isn't that right, Mommy? A memory of Susan Nason suddenly came back. Eileen recalled the look of betrayal in Susie's eyes just before the murder. Later, more fragments would return until Eileen had a rich and detailed memory. She remembered her father sexually assaulting Susie in the back of a van. She remembered that Susie was struggling as she said, no, don't, stop. She remembered her father saying, now Susie, and she even mimicked his precise intonation. Next, her memory took the three of them outside the van, where she saw her father with his hands raised above his head, with a rock in them. She remembered screaming. She remembered walking back to where Susie lay, covered with blood, the silver ring on her finger smashed. Eileen's memory report was believed by her therapist, by several members of her family, and by the San Mateo County District Attorney's Office, which chose to prosecute her father. It was also believed by the jury, which convicted George Franklin Sr. of murder. The jury began its deliberations on the 29th of November 1990, and returned a verdict the next day. Impressed by Eileen's detailed and confident memory, they found her father guilty of murder in the first degree. So coming back to the Twilight Zone, again, you know, we're talking about this element of the unexplained that is missing from the episode Nightmare as a Child. Now you could argue that at this early stage of the show, we're still in the first season and expectations of what a Twilight Zone episode is might not have really been fully formed in the mind of the viewers at the time. You see, we look back having seen the whole of the Twilight Zone and each of us has that idea of what a Twilight Zone episode should be in our own minds. So I think the question is, is it really fair to use this missing element of the unexplained as a criticism? I mean, if you look at an episode like Third from the Sun, which we've spoken about before, you know, really speaking, there's no unexplained element in there either, if you accept the fact that aliens exist. There are some science fiction trappings and a decent twist, so nobody really questions its Twilight Zone credentials, but there's no real unexplained element. Now, when we talk about the episode Where Is Everybody, it's documented that Rod Serling himself believed that it was missing that element of the unexplained. He even went so far as to rectify it in the novelization by adding the element of the theatre ticket that the main character picks up when he's in his delusion. And I think it would have been quite easy to add something like that to Nightmare as a Child, some sort of object that the younger Helen Foley leaves there, or her hot chocolate cup being empty. You know, something to suggest that she was more than just a creation of Helen's mind. But is it really fair to try and apply this kind of formulaic analysis to the Twilight Zone? Is it not just the case that the Twilight Zone could be at times a straightforward story that sometimes was more akin to a true life strange tale rather than one with an element of the impossible? 
Later on in the run, there's an episode called Shadow Play that doesn't have any element of the impossible in it either. It's not science fiction and it has a twist, but even the twist is very grounded in reality and I like that story a lot. So I think what it comes down to is, if it is a tale well told, then we won't be ticking off those boxes in our heads and analysing how Twilight Zone-esque the show is. Which I think is the problem with Nightmare as a Child. It raises too many questions for me. I'll accept Helen Foley blocking out her traumatic memory and the device of her younger self being the mechanism by which her suppressed memories are brought to the surface. So we can put that to one side. I think where some of my reservations come in is the whole situation with Peter Selden. You know, he makes out that he's been watching Helen for years to see whether her memories resurface. Okay, that makes sense, I suppose. But when he makes a decision to come and visit Helen, his motives seem to be a bit muddled to me. If he's coming to check on her, to see if she's remembered. Why does he go to such great lengths to make her remember? He seems to be actively prodding her to make those memories resurface. And I can see the point of that to a degree if he's testing her, but he actually goes away and then he comes back again. I'm not quite sure what the intention is with the writing, but the way it plays to me, Peter Selden turns up with the intention of making these memories resurface and then killing Helen. So the question then is, why didn't he just kill her outright if that was his intention? Peter Selden is quite a sinister figure, so it, it could be that he enjoys toying with Helen. There's already that implication there that maybe he actually sexually abused her when she was a child. So it could be conceivable that he just wants to see the suffering that these memories resurfacing creates and then he wants to take the pleasure of killing it. Okay, I'll take that, but his dialogue doesn't really gel with that explanation either. It just all doesn't quite gel for me and overall it's not an episode that I can see myself returning to anytime soon, but there are a couple of high points. As I said earlier, I enjoy Shepard Strudwick's performance as Peter Selden. I think he's actually very effective, and the scenes where he's talking to Helen, trying to goad these memories out of her, I think are genuinely quite suspenseful at times. And I always think it's interesting too when Rod Serling chooses to write what you could describe as a very un-Serling-esque Twilight Zone. You know, there isn't that character who takes a moment to deliver a monologue, you know, describing what they're going through in very poetic terms. Now, don't get me wrong, I love that, and I love that about The Twilight Zone, but, you know, it's good to see that when Sailing wanted to write a very stripped-down, suspenseful story, where there was no place for that, he could do it. On this occasion, I don't think it was totally successful, but I can see what he was trying to do, and I think maybe with a little bit more work, it could have came together into something uh, a bit more satisfying. And I think in the end, I, uh, I do quite like the final scene where Helen sees another child sitting on the stairs, and she gives the child a smile, 
And it closes out the episode quite well. You know, with that smile, Janice Rule was able to show that Helen was now unburdened of the weight that had been on her for years. Although she couldn't remember her childhood trauma originally, I still think it shaped her life. That very sterile life she seems to have in that apartment. And I think that from here on in, she will begin to live the life that she should have had. Hello. Hello, little one. You want to know something? What? You've got a lovely smile. Don't ever lose it. Thank you. My dolly has a smile, too. You both have lovely smiles. Miss Helen Foley, who has lived in night and who will wake up to morning. Miss Helen Foley, who took a dark spot from the tapestry of her life and rubbed it clean. Then stepped back a few paces and got a good look at the Twilight Zone. So there we go. Nightmare as a child. You know, I don't think it's a terrible episode by any means, but I just it just leaves me a little bit underwhelmed. We've had some nice comments on the twilightzonenetwork.com uh, since I put out the last couple of podcasts. Um, there's one of them I'd just like to read out on the show because it's sort of like a, a critique of the last episode we discussed uh, from a chap called Byron. Thanks for your comments, Byron. And he writes about the episode we discussed last time, A Nice Place to Visit. I love A Nice Place to Visit. It's one of my favorite episodes. The payoff is superb. No reason to be so critical of it. The concept itself is what is so fascinating about this episode. The idea of getting everything you ever wanted for eternity. It's a conception of hell that was never rendered before on television anyways. It makes for a great Twilight Zone. It's in my top 10 all-time favourites. A lot of people could sympathise with Rocky Valentine, especially if you've always felt you've never been given a break. Thanks for that Byron, great comments. I will just pick up on the part where you said there's no need to be so critical of it. I don't think I was actually that critical about the episode. I I enjoy the episode. Basically, when I I come to some of these episodes, some of them, I'll be honest, I haven't seen. And the Twilight Zone podcast for me is a journey of discovery and rediscovery. Discovering those episodes that I haven't seen and rediscovering the ones that I remember from a child. So although there isn't a lot of analysis that goes on, my first reaction and the most important reaction is always from my gut. You know, I will forgive a lot if that kind of gut feeling, that gut uh, experience is one of enjoyment. And the thing about A Nice Place to Visit is it is an enjoyable episode, but when I was a child, this is one of the ones that I remember quite I remember quite vividly and remember enjoying it quite a bit. It's one of the ones that shaped my memory of the Twilight Zone. So coming back to it this time, it just felt that maybe it had something missing. And, you know, you say the concept is uh, is what makes it. And yeah, I'll take that. That's uh, that's great. 
but but for me it just felt like it didn't quite live up to my memories of it and that's a very personal way of looking at it but at the end of the day you know these are my personal kind of thoughts on the episodes and I like what you said there about uh, a lot of people could sympathize with Rocky Valentine if if you've always felt that life never really gives you a break and I think that's one of the good things about the episode too you can read it that way I, I prefer to read it that actually he's just a bad guy you know when he does get everything he wants he still wants to do the bad things because he enjoys them you know so but it's all there it's all there for each of us to uh, interpret in our own way and thanks for uh, thanks for your comments byron really appreciate it so like byron if you'd like to leave any comments about any episodes of the twilight zone then you can do it on the website too it's a good way to do it um or you can email me tom at the twilight zone network.com next time and i'm going to try and get working on this episode straight away is quite a landmark in Twilight Zone history. It's called A Stop at Willoughby and it's one of those episodes that always seems to make people's top 10 lists, you know, that sort of thing. So it's a very beloved episode. So it would be good to get some feedback on A Stop at Willoughby if anyone out there wants to send something in. Like I say, you can email me at tom at the twilightzonenetwork.com. You can either send an email or an mp3 clip with your thoughts on it. It'd be good to get a bit more, you know, kind of feedback going. Or like Byron, put a comment on the website if you want, or on the Facebook page. Uh, that's Facebook slash the Twilight Zone Network. A lot of ways to get in touch, and I always love it when people do. So I'll leave you with that, and I'll see you next time for a stop at Willoughby.